0: Hey guys, welcome to the last session of Deeper Waters. I know it's taken me a while to get this out, but we've been doing the systematic theology class and uh, we've gone over a lot of stuff, talked about the doctrine of the word of God. We talked about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of redemption, and the doctrine of the church. And now that's brought us up here to end times and how is everything going to end. And appropriately as a church, we've also been going through the book of Revelation this past semester. And I've touched, of course, on a lot of things related to end times as I've taught through Revelation, but it's impossible to hit everything unless you take a really, really, really long time to do it. So I figured in this video, I wanted to fill in a few of the gaps that I felt like were kind of left out in some of the preaching uh, that we're able to do in covering uh, Revelation. So there's really three major things I wanted to make sure that I covered in this video which were death in the intermediate state, which is just this idea of what is it that happens when we die? Um, We saw in Revelation that there's this great white throne and that there's going to be this giant resurrection. And it's not until after that that we go to our eternal destinations, either to the heavenly city or uh, those that don't make it there into the lake of fire. But what is going on in this space in between? So I want to talk some about that. And then I also want to discuss the return of Christ. Uh, when is this going to happen? Are we able to know if this, when this is going to happen? What needs to take place before that in order for this to happen? So what does the scripture teach us about the second coming of Christ? And then finally, I want to discuss the millennium. And that is that thousand years that Satan is bound in the bottomless pit. And we talked about that very briefly in Revelation 20, but we're going to really dig into that with these videos. So with that being said, I want to first just kick it off with this idea of death and the intermediate state. What is it that happens when we die? I want to talk specifically about Christians dying first, and then we'll talk next about non-believers dying. Uh, The important thing for us to remember as Christians is that death is not a punishment for us, okay? Uh, All of the punishment for our sin has been poured out on Jesus on the cross. We talked about that when we discussed the doctrine of redemption. So we know that death is the penalty for sin, but Jesus Christ paid that penalty for us on the cross. So why is it that Christians still have to die, That was actually a question that a lot of first century believers were asking, because remember, they were promised eternal life. Jesus said that he gives eternal life. And so when the very first Christians started to die, there were some questions floating around about why this was happening. And I think that there is a uh, way that we can answer this, which is basically that God has decided that he's not going to apply all of the benefits of Christ's redemptive work at once. So a lot of what we've talked about as we've been preaching through Revelation, and this is a common thing we've been talking about in our church, is this idea of already but not yet that God's kingdom has already come with Jesus. He, he came uh, preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. And in many ways, there was a lot of things about it uh, that that came. We saw that uh, the Holy Spirit has come and and dwelt us as believers. We see that uh, the first fruits of the resurrection have already happened with Jesus being raised from the dead. Yet, we also see that there's still a lot of brokenness in the world. And we're waiting until the final consummation of this age. Uh, the, the That great white throne scene that I preached about in Revelation last week. That's what we're looking for, uh, for when the the full redemption is going to happen and God's work is going to be complete in reversing and getting rid of the curse. Now, uh, we see that death is actually the last enemy that's going to be defeated. So Even after all of this kind of stuff, any of the brokenness in our world, the last thing that's actually going to be redeemed is death. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26. Paul wrote this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death will be done away with. But it's the last enemy that's going to be gone. And so this is why Christians are still going to experience death. It's not that it's a matter of punishment for us, but rather it's just simply the result of living in a world that is still broken. Now, The fact that Christians experience death, however, is something that actually allows us the opportunity to identify a little bit more with Christ. We see this is a common teaching throughout Scripture, is that when we suffer, God is actually starting to do things in us that make us more like him, that we identify a little bit more with with him as we go through these kinds of pains. So as we experience all the frailty and the illness and, and deterioration that eventually leads to death, we actually can we have the opportunity at least to grow in Christ-likeness as we experience many of the same kind of sufferings that he did. Now, most of uh, the content we've been going through in this Deeper Waters has come from Groom's Systematic Theology. And every now and then I think he's got a really good quote And I want to just read to you something that he wrote on this idea about death being something that God actually uses to conform us more into Christ's image. He says, If God uses the experience of death to deepen our trust in Him and to strengthen our obedience to Him, then it is important that we remember that the world's greatest goal of preserving one's own physical life at all costs is not the highest goal for the Christian. Obedience to God and faithfulness to him in every circumstance is far more important. And this is an attitude that we see over and over throughout scripture, that the Christian actually values obedience to the Lord above his own life. This is why Jesus talks about someone who doesn't hate their own life actually can't be his disciple. He says that you have to deny yourself to take up your cross and and follow after him. And so we see this attitude very clearly in Paul. There's a few time in, times in Acts where he makes statements like this. In Acts 21, 13, he says, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He says in Acts 20, 24, as he's saying goodbye to these Ephesian elders, where they know that he's going off to encounter some sort of serious trouble on his journey to Jerusalem. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Acts 20:24. 20, and then we also see here in Revelation uh, that there's, they're speaking of these martyrs that have overcome uh, the, all the difficulties in, in remaining faithful to the Lord. We see this in Revelation 12, 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So we see over and over that death is actually not something that uh, the Christian should be super scared of. We need to care a lot more about obeying the Lord and being faithful to him than we need to be concerned about preserving our own life. So this asks the question, how is it that the Christian should view death? Well, in one sense, the Christian should actually be excited about death because it's the opportunity that we have to go and be with God in a way that's closer than what we are right now. We see Paul write this in Second Corinthians 5.8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Oh, we see him right in Philippians 1, 21-23. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better." And then he goes on to talk about how he's actually going to stay because it means fruitful labor and it's it's for the benefit of the Philippians and others that he's ministering to. But we see that he realizes death is actually something that's going to bring him to a better state than what he has even here in this world. We also see this in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So this is talking about the way that Jesus took on flesh and died so that we could be freed from the fear of death because he has overcome the power of death. So what was at one time an extremely fearful thing, right? It's only natural for us as human beings to be scared of death. Because we don't know what's on the other side. But when you become a Christian. You do know what's on the other side. And you realize that Jesus. Is actually the first fruits of our resurrection. That means we're going to raise in the same way that he did. And so as a Christian. We actually no longer need to fear this. And this has been our heritage. Throughout the the past 2,000 years. That's why so many Christians have been martyred. Throughout the years. Because they realize that obedience to the Lord. Is better even than their own life. Now. All of this to be said. Life is still a gift from God, and it's not something that we should take lightly, and it's not something that we should be uh, unwise about or just not care about at all. We saw Paul even there talking about how he was hard pressed between the two. Even though he realized that it was better to go off and to be with the Lord, he realized that God had him here in the body, living for a time and for a reason. And so for us, we have to have the same sort of mentality. Yes, we have a great inheritance prepared for us. Yes, there's something actually much better waiting for us on the other side of death. But we still need to be people that appreciate the life that God has given us now, that live it to the full. And we should never even consider anything like suicide because that is murder. And as God has commanded us not to murder, that's not just for others, that's murdering anybody. And so we have no right to take our own lives as well, even though we might be excited about something uh, that we know God has in store for us. Now, how is it that we should view the death of other Christians? We talked about how do we view our own death. Is it okay for us to be sad about When another Christian dies, let's say that you have a Christian grandparent or a Christian friend that passes away, Uh, we realize that they actually are in a better place. Is it okay for us to be sad about that and to mourn? And I think the biblical answer is yes, absolutely, it's okay to mourn. Um, Not because they've moved to a place that's worse, but rather we can still grieve the fact that we have lost a loved one. We see Stephen was uh, one of the first Christian martyrs. Uh, He he was martyred in the, the book of Acts Stoned to death, and uh, right after he was stoned to death, Acts eight two says that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. All right, that's this mourning. They were very sad that their friend Stephen had been stoned to death. It was okay for them to mourn the loss of their friend. Um, however, we can still have a thankfulness for knowing that our friend has gone to a, a literally a, a better state. We see this in First Thessalonians four thirteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that means dead. that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul is telling these Christians in Thessalonica, I don't want you to be informed about these that are dead. It's not like we have a lack of hope and we, we don't need to mourn in the same way that everybody else mourns when they lose a loved one. Because when the world loses a loved one, they have no legitimate, solid reason to hope that there anything better has come for them or that they're ever going to be able to see them again. But Paul is telling them that, yeah, we can grieve. He says but we just don't grieve as others do who have no hope because we have great hope about what's in store for us after death. It's actually a proper response for us even to be people that worship when the death of a Christian comes. Not that we need to be saying, oh yes, thank, thank you so much, Lord, that you took them, but that we can worship him and knowing uh, that, that God has ultimately defeated death and that we that, that curse has been overcome. Look at what uh, David did in second Samuel, Twelve nineteen 19 to 20, uh, David had lost a child. This was the child that he conceived with Bathsheba in sin, actually. And we see that this child dies. This is David's response. It says, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. You see, we're people that are still able to worship even in the midst of death because we know that it's not the final end. Job had a similar response when he, it was reported to him that all of his uh, children had passed away. And uh, we see his response. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 1.21. So we can be people that actually worship even in the midst of of death, even though we still feel the pain uh, of the loss of a friend, and we're allowed to grieve that too. Now, how is it that we should view the death of non-believers, though? This is a very different issue, because this is actually a legitimately very sad and very depressing event, because we really don't have much hope. Uh, for, for what is in store for them. Now the only hope that we actually have is that they came to faith in their final moments that we don't know about. Uh, we don't know necessarily every time that a person comes to faith they could come to faith even in the last seconds of their life. But if we don't believe that they did then yes that's a cause for extreme mourning and there's not really any reason for us to have hope for what is, is to come for them. We can celebrate their life for sure. Um We can be thankful for the contributions they made. We can be thankful for the way that we love them. I think that's a good and healthy thing to do. Um, We see that David still mourned over the the death of Saul, even though Saul was an enemy of his. Uh, We can have that same kind of attitude, but ultimately we know that there's not a good inheritance that's in store for them. Now, if a person is truly, really, really wicked and a, a great evil upon the earth, say somebody like Hitler or Osama bin Laden, uh, there, within reason is a certain level of rejoicing that, that's acceptable um, due to the fact that their evil can no longer continue on the earth and that they can't keep harming others. Proverbs 11.10 says that when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. So in a sense, there's something to celebrate there. However, it's still really an object of mourning because even as wicked as that person may have been, God still loves them and God still ultimately desires that they would have repented rather than having to die. Uh, we see this in Ezekiel 33, 11. God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And so ultimately our prayer needs to be that every person that doesn't know the Lord, even the most wicked of all people, would would come to faith in Christ, would turn from their way, and that they would live, and that even though they might experience physical death in the body, that they will be raised to eternal life with Christ. Now, what is it that happens when we die? Because there's this typical language of, you know, you die and you go to either heaven or hell, and... There's some accuracy to that, but a lot of time people get this idea that you kind of go to your final state when you die. And while I would say that your fate is fixed when you die, you're actually not in your totally final state yet. Now, the souls of believers when they die go immediately into God's presence. Uh, Wayne Grudem defines death essentially for the believer. It's, It's a temporary cessation of bodily life and a separate and a separation of the soul from the body and that would actually be true for non-believers too um we see that there's this idea that there still seems to be some level of consciousness, even though the soul is separated from the body. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8 and Philippians 1.23, which we looked at both of those earlier, Paul was talking about how it was better for him to go and to be with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross that was dying next to him, when the, the thief was repentant of his sin and asked Jesus to welcome him into his kingdom, Jesus said, "'Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise.'" That's in Luke 23, 43. So there definitely seems to be this idea of an immediate entering into God's presence. Now with this, uh, we can be confident that there is no such thing as purgatory, which is a Catholic doctrine. Uh, there's no clear teaching in the Bible to support purgatory. As a matter of fact, the basis for the Catholic belief of purgatory comes from 2 Maccabees 12, 42 through 45, and that's an apocryphal passage. Uh, We talked week one about this idea of, of the doctrine of the Word of God and why we have the scripture canonized the way that we do. So, uh, we as, as Protestant Christians would not accept 2 Maccabees to be a biblical book that was inspired by the Lord. doesn't mean there's nothing we can learn from it, but it means that we're not going to take uh, what it has to say as the Word of God. And especially when it comes to something like purgatory, when 2 Maccabees is your only justification for it, that's a problem because there's too much of the rest of the Bible that contradicts this idea. First being the fact that Believers seem to be people that enter into immediate conscious fellowship with the Lord after death. Paul was talking about this. Even the thief on the cross who was not repentant until the time of his death, Jesus tells him today that you'll be with me in paradise, which is very different from the Catholic idea of purgatory, which is a place where actually you're still continued to be punished and your sins are, are purged out from you. And that's what I think is the most problematic part of this doctrine because purgatory suggests that there's still some level of sin that needs to be purged out of you before you can enter into God's presence. But the Bible explicitly teaches that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. There's nothing that we can do to add to the finished work of of Christ on the cross. So, the idea that you die and still have to go to some place for extra sanctification really flies in the face of the gospel and the teaching that Christ's sacrifice is fully and perfectly sufficient to take away our sins. We don't have our sins purged out of us by God doing something to us in the afterlife. Rather, our sins are taken away by Christ on the cross and his righteousness is given to us. And we talked quite a bit about this when we covered the doctrine of redemption earlier in this course. Now, there's also this idea of soul sleep being something. Um, This is not a a very popular idea within Christendom. I believe Seventh-day Adventists hold to this. Uh, But by and large, this is a a doctrine that's rejected by most Christians. And this is the idea that uh, you kind of fall into this state of total unconsciousness until the time of final judgment before the great white throne of God at the end of time. Uh, the problem with this is that we see too many situations where, as the verses I referenced earlier, it seems like we enter into conscious fellowship with the Lord. Look at what uh, is written in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, So as the writer of Hebrews is helping the Christians realize what they have come into, something that's better than this old covenant that God gave them in the Old Testament, he's helping them realize, you guys have come to this assembly of the firstborn that are enrolled in heaven. And he talks about the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is believers. We are the righteous that are made perfect. This is the teaching of what I was saying before, penal substitutionary atonement. That Christ died for our sins and gave us his righteousness. So this is who we're coming to. Uh, we also see throughout Revelation, there's these pictures of uh, people before the throne of God that are worshiping him. So I think that that would also contradict the idea of soul sleep. So I'm not exactly sure what all the details of this kind of disembodied presence is that we have before the Lord or uh what shape we have or anything like that. All I know is that uh, we're, we're with the Lord yet we still wait a time that our actual bodies will be resurrected and we receive they're, they're transformed into our resurrection bodies where we'll finally live in the eternal state in New Jerusalem, which is what I just preached on uh, this morning. Now, we also know that the souls of unbelievers go immediately into eternal punishment. And this is primarily something that we can draw from the story about the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus told in Luke 16, 19 to 31. I preached a whole sermon on this last semester. So if you want to go onto the app or onto our website, you can go and find that uh, sermon that I preached about the rich man and Lazarus. I'm not going to read the story for you here now, but what we see is that this there was a wicked rich man and a, a righteous man named Lazarus that was begging at his gate. Lazarus goes off to a place that's called Abraham's bosom, and uh, the the rich man goes down to this place of torment, and there is a chasm that is fixed between the two of them. That uh, as this rich man is in torment and he's crying up to Abraham. Abraham tells him that there's a chasm that's been fixed between the two of us and that nobody can cross over from one side to the other. And so this rich man, while we know that this is not yet the the, the second death, the lake of burning sulfur that's talked about in Revelation where uh, all of the dead will be will be raised to life. They'll stand before the throne of God. And anyone whose name is not written in the book of life is going to be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Uh, We know that we're not yet at that point because the rich man even talks about the fact that he has brothers that are still alive. And he's asking uh, Abraham to send Lazarus to go back and to preach to these guys. Uh, But we, we also see that, yes, okay, he's not yet in final judgment, but he is in a state of conscious torment. And so it seems that not only do the souls of believers go to a place of conscious paradise and fellowship with the Lord, but the souls of non-believers go to a place of conscious punishment and suffering that is separate from the Lord. And this is all in, uh, waiting until the time where the final judgment will I want to talk about the return of Christ. Uh, When and how is this going to happen? Um, One thing that's cool about being a Christian is we get the opportunity to know something about the future for sure. Uh, We can, most of the time, make wise choices about the future. We can uh, make educated guesses about what's going to happen. But the only way that you can actually be sure about something that's going to happen in the future is is if God tells you what's going to happen. And uh, this is one of the things that we get in a few places in the Bible where God makes explicit promises about things that are definitely going to happen in the future. And uh, some of this is what we get to find in our study of eschatology. So one of these very important things that God has promised us is going to happen in the future is that Jesus Christ is going to have a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return to to this earth. I want you to see a few places in scripture where this is very cle- clearly taught. Uh, John 14:3, Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, "And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also." So he's promising he's going to come back and get his disciples. Now, we also see in 1 Thessalonians 4:16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here we see the same idea. The Lord himself is going to descend from heaven. He is going to come back. Um, And then maybe the, the clearest of all about seeing that there's a very obvious bodily return of Christ is in Acts chapter 1. This is right after Jesus has ascended into heaven. He he ascends and then there's some angels that find the disciples naturally watching what was going on and, and seeing Jesus ascend into heaven. They say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, this shows us that there is clearly going to be a bodily return of Christ. It's not just uh, the coming of his teaching or something metaphorical like that. There's going to be a return, and it's going to be in the same way that he left. Uh, We can see other places in Scripture where this is taught as well Matthew 24 44. Hebrews 9.28 and Revelation 22.20 are all passages that you could look up on your own if you're more interested in seeing that. Now, as Christians, we need to be people that should actually be eagerly longing for Christ's return. Uh, Revelation closes out essentially by saying that he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And their response is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. That's Revelation 22, 20. We see similar sentiments expressed about the desire for Christ to return in Titus 2, 12-13, Philippians three twenty, and in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. So this was a desire of the authors of Scripture. This was a desire of the early church that Jesus would come back. And it's been about 2,000 years since the ascension that Christians have still been waiting. And so I know it can be hard to be uh, patient like that. But the reality is that we should be people that are desiring uh, the return of Christ, knowing that when he returns, it's going to be the end of the curse and that uh, all things are going to be set right. Uh, Wayne Grudem had a great quote about This desiring of the return of Christ in his systematic theology, I want to read this from page 1093, says, The more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, and the more they neglect genuine Christian fellowship and their personal relationship with Christ, the less they will long for his return. On the other hand, many Christians who are experiencing suffering or persecution or who are more elderly and infirm and those whose daily walk with Christ is vital and deep will have a more intense longing for his return. And so this is not to say that we can't enjoy the life that God has given us here. There's certainly a lot of things that we can appreciate and enjoy. But ultimately, we should be people that are longing for Christ's return, knowing that what he brings is going to be much, much better than the world that we live in now. Now we have to ask, when is Jesus going to return? I talked about this expectation, this desire that the early church had uh, waiting on him. Didn't know when it was going to happen, but they wanted it to happen. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the return of Christ is still not taken place. There have been a lot of people throughout history that have said that they know when this is going to happen, that have tried to make predictions about it. But all of those things have been in clear defiance of something that Jesus himself said. And Mark 13 says, 32 to 33, he said, but concerning that day or that hour, speaking of his returner, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the father be on guard. Keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. So, Jesus is telling us we do not know when this time is going to come. As a matter of fact, he says that the angels don't know. As a matter of fact, even Jesus in the flesh didn't know. He says only the Father knows when this is going to happen. But we, because of that, need to be people that are always on guard and keeping awake. It's kind of like the professor that might give you a pop quiz at any time. You just always have to be on top of your studies and know what's going on. You always have to be ready. Uh, as Christians, we need to be people that are always living faithfully for the Lord, always expecting his return and always ready knowing that it could come at any moment. Now, uh, with that being said, there there are some evangelicals that disagree, on whether or not Jesus could come back at any second here. Uh, With the field of eschatology, this is one of the uh, areas where you see the most disagreements, even amongst Christians that have a high view of scripture, and uh, that would consider scripture to be the word of God. Because it's dealing with things that are future, and a lot of things can be symbolic, it can be hard sometimes to understand exactly what's going on. Uh, There's a few things that All evangelical Christians agree on um, concerning the final results of Christ's return. We all agree that there's going to be a judgment of unbelievers. We all agree that there's going to be a final reward for believers. Um, We all agree that believers are going to live with Christ in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. Uh, We all agree that the curse is going to be gone. There's no more sin, sorrow, or suffering. And we all agree that God is going to reign forever. Now, the reason there's a bit of a disagreement about whether or not Christ could come back at any time is simply because there were signs that Jesus told us are going to happen before his return. And so some would argue saying, well, yes, Jesus said that we don't know the day or the hour, but he also told us that certain things are going to happen that haven't yet. And so we know that while uh, his return is certainly going to take us by surprise on some level, uh, they would say that it can't necessarily happen yet. I would disagree with them on that. And that's because I think it can be very difficult to know whether or not some of these signs have actually been fulfilled or not. So we're going to walk through a few of those things that uh, some would say, well, you know, this sign hasn't necessarily happened yet. So I'm not sure that Jesus will return. Uh, the, the reason I would really caution against that kind of thinking is just because there are so many verses that show how the return of Christ is going to be sudden and unexpected and that we always need to be ready. Jesus is telling this to people, even in his own generation. Um, uh, so we already read Mark 13, 32 to 33, where he said, be on guard, keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. He said in Luke 12, 40, you also must be ready for the Son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect Jesus told many parables with with relation to this uh, He talked about the parable of the ten virgins where uh, there were some that brought extra oil and some that didn't and the point of that was you need to be ready for the coming of the bridegroom uh, there there are many many places also throughout we see first Thessalonians five two speaks about this Titus 2 uh, twelve to thirteen speaks about this James 5 seven to nine speaks about this. 1 Peter 4.7, 2 Peter 3.10. There are many scriptures that talk about this idea that we need to just always be ready, knowing that the return of Christ could happen at any moment. So, what are the passages that seem to suggest that Christ can't come back until certain things happen? Let's look at a few of those. Uh, one of which is the preaching of the Gospel to all nations so matthew twenty four fourteen says, and this Gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. so the argument would go well uh, the gospel hasn 't been preached to all nations yet, and so jesus can 't come back. Uh, Well, the thing is, it's very difficult for us to know if the gospel actually has been preached to all nations. Depends on what you mean by that term nations. Paul, the apostle, said in Colossians 1.23 that he had preached to every creature under heaven. You see, I'll I'll read this here in context. Uh, Colossians 1.21-23 says, And you... which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, Paul is writing this at a time that the gospel had not spread nearly to the degree that it has today. Now, I don't think that Paul is is asserting that the gospel had actually been preached to every nation at this point. When he talks about how it's been uh, proclaimed to all creation under heaven, uh, I, I think that he's getting at the idea that a representative of every creature under heaven has essentially had the gospel preached to it um because we know literally wasn't every single bit of creation that had heard the gospel yet at this point but i think he is getting the idea that um that the gospel has gone forth far and wide at this point and of course it has far more so today um but regardless of what we want to make of this we have to be careful about saying, well, you know, Jesus can't come back yet because the gospel has been preached to every nation. If nation means like nation state, the way that we think of it today, which it almost certainly doesn't mean in the biblical context, um, the gospel has been preached to every country, but most likely this word is talking about people groups and uh, defining people groups can be a little bit of a tricky business, but almost everyone would agree that there are some people groups out there that have not yet had the gospel preached to them. But because it's very difficult for us to know exactly what Jesus means by this, I wouldn't take this as something to say that we can kick our feet up and not have to worry about the fact that Jesus may be coming back at any moment. Now, another thing that seems like it has to take place before Jesus returns is the Great Tribulation. In Mark 13, 19, Jesus says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And we see this picture that's painted. We saw some of this in Revelation. You see this in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 uh, that there is this really great time of tribulation and trial that is going to come that's extreme. Now, the earth has gone through a lot of difficult times. There's been plenty of times where I'm sure people thought that they were living in the Great Tribulation. I try and think of what it must have been like to be a person uh, maybe even living as recently as World War II. You could have thought that something like this was going on. Um, Whatever this means, I think he's probably pointing to a tribulation that's far worse than anything that we've seen yet. But once again, we can't be 100% sure that this is something that hasn't happened or that it couldn't happen very, very quickly and uh, trigger the return of Christ. Now another one they would say is that false prophets have to be working signs and wonders. Mark 13 22 says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And so this is getting at the idea that there's going to be false prophets that are deceiving a lot of people at the end of times. Uh, This is something that I would say has happened already. There's Um, been false prophets and teachers through even going back to the time of the early church. In Acts, you see somebody like this. uh, Simon the Sorcerer was someone who was working uh, miracles and and, and deceiving people. So uh, for this one, I I certainly wouldn't look at it and say, "Oh, well, Christ can't come back because that hasn't happened yet. We also see, though, that there's supposed to be some fantastic signs that are happening in the heavens, crazy type stuff. Uh, <clears throat> look at what Mark thirteen twenty four to 25 says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now I would say this is almost certainly not happened yet. Uh, but it also seems like the kind of thing that could happen virtually simultaneously with the coming of Christ. Um, so I would still say Jesus could come back at any moment. He, especially when something like this starts to happen, I would say that there's a good chance that's when his return is taking place. Um, we also see that there's supposed to be this coming of a, a man of sin. Second uh, Thessalonians two three says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, talking about the return of Christ, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So there has to be this man of lawlessness, uh, probably the Antichrist or uh, what I would see the revelation calling the beast, which we're going to talk about in this next video, uh, in part three of our eschatology on deeper waters. That's probably what I think that's talking about there, but still very ambiguous, not a hundred percent clear who this is or what that's going to look like. And then uh, finally, some would say Jesus can't return until there's a great salvation of Israel. Romans 11, 25 through 26 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so many Christians hold to the idea that this passage is teaching that there's going to be a massive... Uh, awakening within Israel where they're going to come to see that Jesus is their promised Messiah and that they are going to come to faith in Christ. I hope that happens and I actually lean towards believing that that will happen but um, there is also a way that you could say well there's a a chance that this is a prophecy that's already been fulfilled and that would be if you say uh, the church is new Israel and there, there doesn't necessarily have to be a waiting for this in gathering because the the full gathering of people has, has come. And so when it says that all Israel will be saved, it's talking about all of God's people, all of the church will be saved. While I agree that the church and Israel have been merged together into one people of God, I think that's a problematic interpretation because uh, he's talking about Israel ethnically, clearly in the first sense in that passage, when he says a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It would be strange if he used it in two different uh, meanings there. But regardless, the, the point of what we're trying to get at in this section is that it does seem that there has to be more signs that are going to happen before the return of Christ. However, we cannot be sure that those things haven't been fulfilled. And so while I would say, yeah, there's still probably some things that are going to happen, we need to be absolutely ready for the return of Christ because it's possible that they already have been fulfilled. And even if they haven't been, it's possible that they might happen lightning fast, right before the time that Jesus returns. So as Christians, we need to realize that we must be ready for the return of Christ at any moment. We are going to be digging into the millennium and all the different views that Christians have about that. Now, this is something that uh, some of you may have never even heard of or uh, may have no idea what I'm talking about. And I would say this is probably one of the biggest areas of dispute amongst evangelical Christians, uh, not in with terms of importance, but just it's one of the areas there's the most disagreement about, just because it's probably one of the most unclear uh, doctrines that we have in Scripture, because there's really only one passage of Scripture that speaks on it explicitly. So even amongst Christians that have a high view of Scripture and uh, that trust the Word of God, um, that that agree on similar methods of interpretation and all these kind of things it can still become very difficult to figure out what exactly is going on with the millennium. And uh, part of that is because the one passage that we have on this, too, comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And uh, apocalyptic literature is tricky by nature. So even if you uh, believe take a very high view of Scripture and um, believe it's God's Word, that doesn't mean that you inherently interpret every word of scripture as literal as a matter of fact you are doing a disservice to god if you do that because it's very clear that there's some parts of scripture that are meant to be interpreted figuratively and we see quite a bit of that in revelation so sometimes in apocalyptic literature it can become difficult to discern between what is being spoken of literally here and what is being spoken of symbolically and that's why there's so much disagreement about amongst christians with various things in Revelation and uh, with the millennium in particular. Thankfully, I think there's room for disagreement on this issue. Uh, It doesn't mean that it's unimportant. If God gave it to us in the Bible, then it's definitely important. We shouldn't just shrug it off as something that's trivial and say, I don't really care about it. I think that's very disrespectful to something that God thought was important to communicate to us. Um, However, because there's no indication that an understanding of this doctrine is central for Christian life or salvation, then we can relax a little bit and and leave some room for humility and disagreement uh, with our brothers and sisters. Uh, Nonetheless, we should examine the text and come to the best conclusion that we can on this. So, as I said, the one passage of scripture that speaks explicitly about the millennium is Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 10. But before we read that, I want to look back in Revelation a little bit to familiarize ourselves with, with uh, some characters in particular that I think are going to be helpful for understanding this. So there's a few sinister characters that we see in the book of Revelation. Uh, Three in particular that I want to highlight. There is uh, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So... The dragon is pretty clear to us. That one is Satan. We'll see him explicitly defined as such in this passage about the millennium. Uh, So Satan is referred to in in Revelation as a dragon. He's talked about as being an ancient serpent, the devil, various places there. Now, we see a separate character, though, in Revelation. It's called the beast. And uh, this beast is, is a powerful representative and, and, and servant of Satan. is not Satan himself, but it almost seems like a right-hand man of sorts. Uh, seems to be a physical being. I, I think it's most likely a human, although it's never explicitly portrayed that way in Revelation. Um, as I was saying, it can be hard to know what's literal and what's symbolic, but Uh, The most detailed passage that we get on the beast in Revelation comes in chapter 13. So I'm going to read that to you and uh, let you see how this this character is described. So starting in Revelation 13, verse 1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, that's crowns, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. All right. So this is the beast. This is a character that a lot of people would say, is uh, if you've heard of the term the Antichrist before, that, that is a scriptural term, but it's not a term that's ever explicitly connected with the beast here in Revelation. But that's what a lot of people think is going on with this beast, that this is, uh, is symbolic of some sort of uh, person that is going to be um, exercising quite a bit of uh, authority with regards to rebelling against the Lord, leading people rebelling against the Lord, and uh, that, that Satan has um, given quite a bit of of power to this character. But that's the beast. Now, we also see that there's another beast we're introduced to in Revelation chapter 13 as well. And uh, starting at verse 11 is when this one starts to be described to us. It says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns, like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, The reason I think this beast is actually uh, the the false prophet, which is going to be identified later in Revelation 19. We're going to see that there's a beast and a false prophet that together are leading an army against God and his people. And uh, I I believe that this is the false prophet just because this second beast seems to uh, be subservient to the first beast, uh, but it's also a deceiver. It seems to function in all the ways that a false prophet would. Now, as far as the details of who this, who or what, uh, the beast and the false prophet are, that is, um, subject to an incredible amount of speculation. I mean, uh, remember John, the apostle wrote this around, uh, AD 90, right around that, that time. And, uh, at this point, Christians were being, uh, persecuted under the emperor Domitian and, uh. Before this, though, Christians had been heavily persecuted by an emperor named Nero. And Nero had even gone through this thing where um, he kind of had a a mysterious death or disappearance, and and people thought maybe Nero is going to come back, and this is that beast that like looked like it was slain and came back, and then th- there's all sorts of theories about what might have been going on there. Some people are saying, "No, this is something future, where this is going to be a person that kind of looks like they were slain, but then comes back, and it's it's almost a, uh, a mockery or a sham version of what Jesus did, and actually dying and coming coming back." I don't know. There's there's so much mystery in it that I'm not really going to get into that in this video, but I do think that it's important for us to. Realize that there's these these three separate characters. There's the dragon, which is Satan There's the beast which seems to be uh, his number one kind of representative or right-hand man And then there is this false prophet who seems to kind of be the primary servant of the beast So we see these three sinister characters and in Revelation 19 We see that the beast along with his false prophet has assembled the kings of the earth and their armies to make war against Jesus and his army now, as you might imagine, this does not go well for them. If they want to fight Jesus, they're going to lose. And so in Revelation 19, 20 through 21, we see this. And the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive to the lake of fire. That burns with sulphur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So Jesus defeats the beast, he defeats the false prophet, and he throws them into the lake that burns with fire and sulphur. Uh, this is a description of hell, and this is um, that this is their final state. We're, we're winding down the book of Revelation. By the time we get to Revelation 19, and these are done away with. However, uh, we still see that the number one sinister character, the dragon, has not been done away with. It explicitly mentions that the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, but what about the dragon? What about Satan himself? And uh, this is where we need to keep reading on to Revelation chapter 20, and this is where we're going to get this idea of the millennium. So right after what I just read there in 19, we're going to pick up verse 1 of chapter 20. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So this is the passage that we get about this millennium. And millennium just means thousand years. So we saw several things. There's this idea that Satan is bound for thousand years. There's some people that come to life to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Um, and then all of this is... Uh, happening for, for whatever reason, Satan is been released at the end of 1,000 years. He comes out and kind of mounts an, another last hurrah, uh, gathers a ton of people, That he's deceived these nations and then he is finally defeated and he meets his final end. Being thrown into hell along with the beast and the false prophet. And keep in mind there, Satan is not being thrown into hell as its king. He is being thrown into hell to be tormented there day and night forever and ever. So what's going on with this thousand years between the time that the beast and the false prophet end up in the lake of fire versus the time that Satan ends up in the lake of fire? Well, there's really three uh, basic views about how to deal with this thing we call the millennium. And each view gets its name from when they believe that Christ will return with regard to the millennium. Okay, So post-millennialists believe that Christ is going to return after the millennium. post millennium the return of Christ will happen after the millennium. Premillennialists believe that Christ will return before the millennium. So you can remember this uh, by keeping in mind that Jesus is central. He's the one that we worship, so his return is what we base the term off of. The return of Christ is the thing that determines whether it's pre- or post-millennial. You can also uh, remember this. Just by seeing, um, we're already used to basing time off of the coming of Christ. This is why time is already divided BC, which is before Christ, and AD, which stands for Anno Domini, uh, which is the medieval Latin for in the year of our Lord. So you're already used to judging uh, time off of the first coming of Christ. So when you're talking about millennial terminology, just know that you're basing that off of the second coming of Christ. Does he come before or after the millennium? There's also a third. View called amillennialism, and uh, these people don't believe that there is a future millennium at all. It's not that they don't believe in a millennium, it's just that they don't believe in a future millennium. And their view, the amillennial view, is actually the simplest. So that's the one I'm going to start with by explaining. Uh, The ah just means no. So, um It's kind of like atheists. It's a no-God kind of thing. It's not really a great term for all millennialism, as I said, because it's not that they don't believe in the millennium. It's just that they don't believe in a future uh, millennium. Uh, Rather, they would say that we are currently living in the millennium. The church age uh, that Jesus ushered in is the millennium that's being described in Revelation 20. They would say that the thousand years here are not to be taken literally. Uh, rather, it's a round number that's meant to communicate a long period of time. So the fact that the church age has gone on for a little over or almost 2,000 years at this point is not a problem for the Amillennialist view. Because they're just saying, hey, it's it's a number that's meant to communicate a long period of time. And that's not a stretch at all. We see lots and lots of symbolic numbers in Revelation. Um now they would say that Satan is bound right now because his power is greatly diminished due to the power of Holy Spirit uh, being in believers. Uh, they would say that Christ came and bound him at His first coming, and uh, they they would also say that when Christ returns, there's just going to be uh, one resurrection. It's, it's all going to happen at the same time. The unbelievers are going to be resurrected, and they will go to the lake of fire along. Uh, with Satan and the beast and the false prophet, and that the believers are going to be resurrected, and that they're going to enter into their eternal home, and the new heavens and new earth. So basically, the amillennial view is one that doesn't bother with um, saying that there's going to be some future thousand years. So if you if you were totally unfamiliar with the millennium, there's a new concept to you, uh, you were probably kind of an, an accidental amillennialist. Now, uh, post-millennialism, is the belief that Jesus is going to return after the millennium happens. Uh, they would view this as saying that more and more people are going to become Christians through a powerful and effective evangelism, so much so uh, that the progress of the gospel ushers in the millennium. So the idea here is that Satan is bound because almost everyone in the world has become a Christian. Um it'd be a period of almost universal Christianity that's going to last for a very long time, maybe a thousand years, maybe not exactly. It doesn't have to be uh, that perfect number. They would also say you, you can interpret that either literally or just to mean a long period of time. But the idea is that, uh, the millennium essentially is ushered in through effective Christian evangelism that, that essentially brings the entire world to faith in Christ. And then, uh, after this has happened for a long period of time, Jesus will come back and he will usher in the end of the age where the final judgment happens. Now premillennialism is the belief that Jesus is going to return before the millennium happens and uh, in fact it's his return is what marks the beginning of millennium. Uh, This view favors a more literal reading of the text, although it doesn't require everything to be interpreted completely literally. It is the most straightforward reading of the text that we get. So they would say that uh, the church age is going to continue. Yes, we're, we're in a special time where God has started to bring the kingdom in, but they would say, no, this is not the millennium. Uh, what we see described as the millennium uh, seems to be something where Satan's power is restricted far more than what it is right now. And uh, they would say that there's going to be a great tribulation that's going to happen, where things are going to get really, really, really bad. We talked about this some in the part two of this video. When we saw, hey, what are the signs that need to happen before the return of Christ? Uh, Jesus talked about all these terrible things that are going to be taking place. We've seen a lot of that throughout the book of Revelation. We saw uh, the beast and the false prophet and all the havoc that they were wreaking. Uh, Proponents of this would say, yeah, these are all things that are going to have to happen uh, before Jesus comes back to start the millennium. Now... um, some believers or potentially all believers throughout history at, at the millennium, are going to be raised from the dead, and they're going to live on earth and reign with Christ during this time. So once Satan is bound, there's, there's a resurrection that happens. You saw that in the text there. It talks about the ones that didn't receive the mark of the beast and the ones that were slain for him ha- for Christ. So that this might say, hey, maybe it's just the martyrs and just the people that lived through the great tribulation and didn't get the the mark that are alive for the millennium and reign with Christ, or maybe it's all believers throughout history that are raised with Christ. There can be a different Difference of opinion here, but there's some sort of resurrection that's happening that's going to allow people to reign with Christ during this thousand year time. They would also maintain that there are going to be some non believers that remain during the millennium. Uh, they might be few in number, certainly at least at the beginning. Um, but they, this is going to be a time of incredible peace and blessing. And Jesus is physically going to reign over this world with his people. Now, um, they would say Satan is totally bound. He doesn't have any influence to go and deceive the nations at this point or anything like that. Uh, however, at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be released. and He's going to gather unbelievers to make war against Christ and his people. Now, this could happen maybe because um, there were some that were kind of outwardly still unbelievers during the millennium, and he's going to gather them. Maybe there were some that were uh, outwardly obedient, but inside really not faithful to Jesus. And so when Satan comes along to deceive them, they turn his side. Um, Not sure exactly how that army is going to be gathered there, but when he's released, he's going to gather everybody that's around, that is, uh, that wants to defy the Lord, and he's going to lead this uh, attack in his last attempt against the Lord. Now, we, the, the premillennialists would say that Satan is going to be decisively defeated in this last battle. It's after that that he's going to be thrown into hell, not to be king there, as I said, but to be tormented there uh, day and night for eternity. And then after all of this happens is when Christ is going to raise all people throughout history that have not yet been raised, and they are going to be judged at the great white throne where they'll be assigned to their eternal destinations. Now, this is called historic premillennialism because it's the view that's been held from the earliest centuries and continues into today. So this is the oldest view and and the most popular view throughout church history, largely because it is, uh, as I said, the most straightforward reading of the text. Now, there is also a variation of premillennialism that's called pre-tribulational or dispensational premillennialism, all right? And... This is just another form of premillennialism, but the difference between this and historic premillennialism is that these people believe that not only will Jesus come back before the millennium, but he's also going to come back before the Great Tribulation, all right? Uh, this view did not really have much popularity until about the 19th and 20th centuries, and uh, This is the one that says there's going to be a rapture that comes and takes all the believers away before things get really bad, so they're not going to have to go through the Great Tribulation with the rest of the world. If you ever read the Left Behind books, are familiar with those, this is the view that is being uh, taught in those books. Now, uh, that's the biggest difference between the two different types of premillennialism, the post-tribulational premillennialism, which is the historic one saying Christians will live through the tribulation, Versus pre-tribulational or dispensational premillennialism saying that they are not going to live through the tribulation because they will be raptured away first. That the idea of the rapture before the tribulation is the biggest difference. Uh, But one other significant difference is that um, people that hold to pre-tribulational premillennialism are generally going to keep a very distinct uh, separation between the nation of Israel and the church. They're going to see a strong separation there between ethnic Israel and the church. Uh, they're suggesting that the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament were specifically for ethnic Israel and they say that it is improper to say that the church is the new beneficiary of these promises. So they're going to say that many of the Old Testament promises to Israel have not yet been fulfilled and they'll argue that there's going to be a great awakening amongst the Jewish people where they come to faith in Jesus Christ. and. <coughs> When they reign with him during the millennium, this is when many of those uh, prophecies that we see in Isaiah and various other places are going to be fulfilled. Now, each of these views has strengths and weaknesses, so we need to be humble in our assertions about which one we think is right. Uh, With that being said, I want to examine the strengths and weaknesses of each one, and then I'll let you know what I think is um, the, the best one. So amillennialism, it has some strength. Its greatest strength is just the simplicity of it. Amillennialists don't want to make too much uh, out of one passage that speaks on the millennium, especially when it's in a book that's as cryptic as Revelation. Uh, They have ways of explaining how the events of the millennium are already happening. Like I said, the the binding of Satan being something that happened during Jesus' earthly ministry, the work of the Holy Spirit, these kind of things uh, the, the spirit equipping believers to overcome sin and to have effective evangelism, they would say that's the binding of Satan that's taking place there. <laughs> um, it also avoids some of the strange implications that you might get from a straightforward reading of the text. So, for example, it, it avoids some of the tough questions that that come up with premillennialism. Say, what uh, one, one question would be, how is it that there can still be unbelievers during the millennium if some or all Christians throughout history have been raised from dead, from the dead, and are living alongside them, right? Because we saw that in the passage where it talks about how there was a resurrection that takes place, and yet we still see there's this rebellion later, and it's kind of confusing because you're thinking, how is it that literally there could be this mass resurrection that Jesus is is dwelling bodily and ruling as king, and yet there are still people that are defying his rule. It's very confusing to say, how in the world could that happen? Uh, You would think that this would be enough to bring even the most staunch atheist to faith. So uh, an amillennialist view avoids having to answer that question. Um, There's also the question of just kind of what even is the point of the millennium? If we see uh, the Lord moving towards finally restoring everything and bringing the new heavens and new earth what's the point of having this thousand year span that's kind of an in-between thing where things are way better but not yet fully um taken care of and death and and sin and satan aren't fully yet done away with so it seems kind of like a, a halfway point that you can avoid now um One way that that amillennialists would say, once again, I want to reiterate, they're not denying the millennium. Uh, They would simply say that they're enjoying it right now. A way to say that amillennialists might say premillennialists are waiting for the millennium, postmillennialists are working for it, but we are enjoying it. That's essentially the idea that the amillennialist is going to have, that they're living in it right now. Now, there are some weaknesses to this view, though. Uh, One is that there may only be one clear passage that state that talks about this, but it clearly seems to assert some things that are not happening right now. For example, it seems like a pretty big stretch to say that Satan is bound to where he can't deceive the nations. Yes, there's an aspect of uh, Satan's power being diminished in the age of the Church, but I mean, Satan is still doing quite a bit of damage right now, and you can see this all throughout Scripture. Uh, just Read some of these passages. Listen to some of these passages I'm going to read to you and see if there's any way you can reasonably reconcile them. So Revelation 20, 2 through 3. This is back to the Millennium Passage. says, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Okay, that seems... Pretty powerful and his limitations there. Now listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. This is in the church age. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul's saying that Satan is, is blinding the minds of unbelievers. And this is in the church age, which doesn't seem to line up with the idea that he'd be bound in a pit. Uh, Peter in first Peter five, eight says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The image of the devil prowling around like a roaring lion does not fit well with the idea of him being sealed and bound in a pit for a thousand years. Uh, John the Apostle, same one that wrote the book of Revelation. We see him write this in 1 John 5, 19. <coughs> we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So all of these are, are things that were written by the Apostles in the church age. And the way that they're describing Satan does not seem to suggest that that Satan is bound and thrown in a bottomless pit right now. And so I think that's the greatest weakness of all millennialism is that um, I, I think the way that they describe Satan being bound doesn't really uh, fit well with what Revelation seems to be describing. Uh, one other weakness of amillennialism is that there's other passages that don't explicitly mention the millennium, but they seem like they need a millennial age that looks much different from the one that we're in right now in order for them to be fulfilled. But I'll give you an example of that when we talk about the strengths of the premillennial view. All right, let's talk about postmillennialism. So postmillennialism, Postmillennialism, its strength is that it takes seriously the power of God to move through his people to evangelize the world. Remember, this is the view that says uh, the millennium is going to be ushered in through effective evangelism as, as more and more the world becomes Christians. Essentially, so many people become Christians that the, the rule of Christ is essentially happening because pretty much the whole world is following him. It's a very optimistic view of how things are, are going to play out in our world uh, the idea is, Hey, Jesus told us to partake in the great commission to go and make disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and earth is, was given to him and he gave us that command. So we should expect this mission to be successful. While I agree that Jesus has equipped us for evangelism and, uh, given us a great deal of success in that much of the world has become Christian. There's still by and large, most of the world is, is not. And, uh, it would take an incredible amount of difference for us to ever get to a spot where you could really see anything that seems to look like what I see the millennial kingdom as being described. I think there's a lot of weaknesses with the post-millennial view. First, I think it has a lot of the same weaknesses that we talked about for amillennialism. The world becoming way more Christian is a very different kind of millennium than the one that I think Revelation 20 is talking about. Um, the, there also doesn't seem to be a very clear way of distinguishing when exactly the millennium happens. Uh, at what percentage point of people becoming Christians does this thing get ushered in? It's not, not entirely clear. Um, I also think that there's some passages that suggest that most of the world will not become Christian and that things are going to get a lot worse. And that's actually where I think the biggest weakness of postmillennialism is. <coughs> Look at what Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus seems to be suggesting here that there's not going to be many that find eternal life, which would be very different from the idea of the, the post thinking that um, most of the world is going to become Christian. Look at what Paul warns Timothy here in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, you saw that list there. That that certainly doesn't seem like a, a list of people that are living under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul says that this is the the people that are coming here in the last days. And there's going to be times of difficulty. But finally, I, I think the biggest passage that, that really causes a problem with... Uh premillennialism, or sorry, with post-millennialism is the all of it discourse that Jesus gives in Matthew 24, and which you can also find in Mark 13, uh, where he just talk paints a picture of the world um, going through this great tribulation. And he says that all the tribes of the earth are gonna mourn when they see Jesus coming on the clouds with, with great power and glory. This doesn't give the impression that most of the earth has become Christian when Jesus returns. Um Some try to explain Matthew 24 by saying it's all talking about the fall of Jerusalem, but I I don't buy that argument because I think that Jesus ties too many of these events to his actual bodily return. We're not going to go through all that right here, but you can read Matthew 24 yourself and uh, you can see if you think that those ideas reconcile well with the idea that things are just going to continue to get better and better and better as uh, the millennium is, is ushered in and then Christ returns. So that leads us to premillennialism. Now, the biggest strength of premillennialism is just that it is the most straightforward reading of the text. Um, This view doesn't really have any difficulties within the text that it has to explain. Uh, It follows the same timeline that's shown within Revelation 20. Now, you have a lot of questions. There's implications, all that kind of stuff, that the Amillennialists, I was saying, you avoid questions about how do we have this weird thing where there's resurrected believers living at the same time as uh, non-believing people that are going against the Lord. You have some weird questions you have to answer, but at least within the text, it's consistent. Um, And it doesn't have anything that it has to explain that I think is too much of a stretch the other great strength of premillennialism is that there are other biblical texts that seem to be best explained by a millennial age. That's quite different than the kind of age in which we're currently living. So the amill- the amillennialist is saying that there, uh, the, the church age is the millennium, but I read a certain passage like Isaiah 65, 19 to 20. And I say, I, I don't understand how this passage, um, It certainly doesn't seem to be descriptive of the final state, but it doesn't seem to be descriptive of our age either. So let me read this for you in Isaiah 65, 19-20. It says... I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people for no more shall be heard in it. The sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives, but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die. A hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be. Okay. Now, did you, you catch that there? This is clearly something that's different. It's, it's speaking towards a future age. That's much better. Uh, there's, there's not the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. I think some of this might even kind of be merging the view of, of what's going to happen in the final state and what's going to happen in the, 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 millennium. But, uh, we see that there's this, this great state that's being ushered in yet at the same time, death is still there. Death has not been fully done away with yet here. Matter of fact, it talks about, there's not going to be infants that die and there's not going to be old men that don't follow their days, but. The young man shall die at 100 years old, and the sinner a 100 years old shall be accursed. So we see there are still people that are dying. And there are lots of different ways that people try to explain this passage. But I think that the premillennialist has the, the best advantage in explaining it because they can say this is talking about the millennium. It's a time that's much different. Satan is bound. He has no influence. So the the world is far more righteous. Yet death hasn't fully been done away with. Our our final state hasn't yet come. And that's why there are still sinners. And there are still people that are going to die. So I I think that's a major strength of the premillennial view. Is that even though there's only one text that speaks to it clearly. At least this other text here in Isaiah seems to best explained by the existence of a millennial age. Now, the, the greatest weakness of the the premillennial view is that it creates some questions that we don't have clear answers to, which I talked about earlier in the millennial section. Um, we, we don't know how sin is able to persist with, with this crazy kind of kingdom and people being raised from the dead. But uh, to that, I would answer that um, just because it doesn't make sense to us doesn't mean that it can't happen. Uh, there are many people that persisted in sin and unbelief in Jesus' time, even when they saw him work miracles. Uh, the response to that, that the Pharisees and religious leaders had to the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead was not to repent and to believe in Jesus, but uh, rather to actually accelerate and, and really put into action their plans to try to kill him. So... Even though I think the millennial kingdom is going to be this incredible time where Jesus is reigning and there's a lot of great things happening, uh, we see that sin is so deeply entrenched and and nonsensical even in the human heart that there could still be some crazy stuff um, happening where, where people continue in rebellion against God, even in this age. We also might not have a full understanding of why the millennium is necessary, um, but that's okay. It's it's normal for us to not have a perfect understanding of exactly how and why and when God wants to roll out all of the parts of his plan for redemption. So I would advocate for historic premillennialism. Uh, the reason I'm not dispensational premillennialist or, or the... Uh, the pre tribulational, the pre tribulational, pre millennial view is because um, there, there's two major reasons. First off, I think it's quite clear in Matthew 24 that Jesus comes and gathers his people after the great tribulation. I don't think that there's a rapture that happens first. Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 24 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, From one end of heaven to the other. So we see that Jesus is gathering up his people, but it's something that's happening after the tribulation, which is why I I don't buy the idea that the church is raptured away first. (laughs) The other thing I would say about um, dispensational premillennialism is just that the church and Israel have together become one people of God. Uh, I I think it's appropriate to see that the promises that were made to Israel were promises that were made to God's people, not necessarily just to ethnic Israel. They were made to true Israel, God's people, and uh, that I believe it's perfectly acceptable for the church to be recipients of those promises. Uh, There doesn't need to be a distinction anymore. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 23 to 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." So what Paul is getting at here is, of course, there's still an ethnic Jew and an ethnic Greek. He's not saying that's limited. There's still male and female. But what we're seeing is there's no distinction salvation and promise-wise with regard to these people. When he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He's saying that Christians are Abraham's offspring and that they are heirs of the promises that were given to Abraham. So I would say that uh, it's perfectly appropriate to say that the promises that were made to Israel were made to Abraham's children. And the church is the recipients of those. Now, let's also not forget, ethnic Israel uh, is also part of the church. Some of ethnic Israel is. All of the early church was... We're, we're Jews. Like the first Christians were all Jews. All of Jesus' disciples were Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew. So it's not as though Israel isn't also part of the church, but we've been blended together into one people of God. So it's not like they're missing out on the promise, the fulfillment of their promises entirely. Also, as I said, I can't remember if it was in this video or the one before this, I do lean towards believing that there's going to be a massive awakening of the Jewish people where most of them are going to turn to Christ uh, and put their faith in him as the Messiah. And therefore, they will be brought back into the people of God and thus they would receive the fulfillment of their promises along with the church. Um, But ultimately, I believe those promises are for the people of God. And we don't have to keep a clear distinction as saying God has to fulfill this promise to Israel. Because I believe that God is what he's really done is he made the promise to his people. And he will fulfill it by giving it to his people. Which is ultimately the uh, children of Abraham by faith who are in Christ. Whether they are ethnic Israel or not. So with that being said, I believe that historic premillennialism... Where you go through the tribulation, it's it's a post-tribulational pre-millennial return of Christ is the best interpretation of Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10. Uh, nonetheless, we can still have Christian unity amongst one another even if we disagree on this topic. So I hope that you've been able to keep everything straight. I know there's a lot of information about the millennium, but uh, I think it's fascinating to see how God's plan is unfolding for. Uh, redeeming all of us and ultimately bringing us into the eternal state which comes after the millennium where we get to dwell with him forever.